Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You're listening to a podcast which is part of our This Indonesian Moment series, recorded live at our 2018 festival. From language to art to religion, and as we approach the 2019 presidential election, speakers from across the archipelago and beyond ask, how is Indonesia's place in the world changing? Listen in and let the magic of our 15th year continue. Well, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for coming to this session on, on Evolving Islam, which I think is going to be really interesting. Um, we're missing a panelist at the moment. Uh, Dina Zaman may show up, but if not, I think that uh, Sydney and Haidar can certainly keep us uh, occupied for the next hour. Um, this is just, for me, a tremendous pleasure. I'm actually a historian by training, and what I love about the theme of Evolving Islam is it means that we have to look to the past as well as the future. And um, I feel really, uh, really blessed to have known both of these panelists for quite some time. I think I met Sydney 20 years ago when I was here as a Fulbright professor. And of course, I knew about her work. And pa Haidar, I interviewed 10 years ago when I was just getting started on my book on journalism and Islam. So uh, um, for me, this is just incredibly exciting. Um, I think everybody already knows who these wonderful people are, but I'm just going to quickly give you a little bit, bit of background. Sydney is now the uh, director of the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict. For years, she was the, the, the boss at, of, of the Jakarta office of the International uh, Crisis Group. And I just found out that uh, that office was shut down, what, in 2013? Because they figured the crisis was over and that she should just move to Singapore. Um, fortunately, she did not do that. Instead, she moved her office to, uh, to, is it IPAC, is that what you call it? To IPAC, and uh, same staff, and but now it's the same board, but now it's an Indonesian NGO. Um, and Sydney has written extensively, um, just, you know, her work is phenomenal. If you're interested in trying to unravel all the details of the co incredibly complex world of political Islam here, everything from, you know, the, the moderate mainstream to uh, people who advocate violent extremism. Pat Heider, I hope that um, it's too bad his session this morning was at nine because it was really fascinating. Um, he is, uh, he has got so many different hats he wears. Let me just pull up my list. Uh, um, he's, first of all, for those of you who don't read Indonesian, he's the author of a book called Islam, the Faith of Love and Happiness that you can find on Amazon. He has a new book he's writing on Rumi that is going to be translated into English. Uh, he has, uh, he's a three-time Fulbrighter, which I like. Uh, he has a master's degree from Harvard, uh, the, uh, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, PhD in philosophy from the University of Indonesia. Uh, he's the director of Mizan, the publishing house. Um, he is... He, I would say he's in the grand tradition of Indonesian public intellectuals who write about Islam. Um, you know, in the Nurkholish Majid, Abdur Rahman Wahid school, uh, you know, of someone who, you know, gives lectures, teaches at institutes, uh, is a very active writer. Um, and uh, those of you who heard him this morning, he was talking about Islam as a religion of love, not a religion of law. Um, and so these are some of the things we'll talk about. Okay, so starting with evolving Islam, it seems like if we're going to understand this, we need to go back to the Order Baru. And uh, let's see, uh, Sydney, would you like to start by telling us what was the role of Islam in the Order Baru? How did Suharto see Islam? 
I think we have to see Suharto's vision of political Islam as being inextricably linked to regional rebellions which took place in different parts of Indonesia initially against the Dutch, but it turned into uh, rebellions against the newly independent Indonesia and Indonesian army. And these were rebellions that started out first in West Java, then in Makassar, then in Aceh, but also in little pockets elsewhere that wanted to see independent Indonesia as an Islamic state, not as a secular republic. And there were other regional causes, uh, local resentment. For example, in Aceh, it wasn't really that the Achenese wanted an Islamic state. What they wanted and had been promised was a province of their own, and instead they got incorporated with North Sumatra. And that's what triggered the rebellion, not some kind of weird uh, 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 alternate vision of the state. But in any case, it was putting down the regional rebellions that gave Suharto and the military that he was working with the idea that political Islam was by definition violent and by definition a, an ideology that undermined right. uh, the state. And so, uh, one of his missions was to suppress any kind of appearance or manifestation right. of political Islam. And that led to certain policies. For example, in the 1980s, uh, uh, against any expressions of dissent that were tinged with an Islamic nuance. And he put together a policy uh, in 1980, I think, called um, uh, Asas Tungal, or uh, it, it meant one basis or only one basis, and it meant that any organization had to be based on the state ideology Panchasila, and that included all Islamic organizations, uh, and all Christian organizations sure. for that matter, uh, had to be based on Panchasila and not the religion that they had been formed uh, under. So he saw Islam as a security threat, right? He saw Islam very much as a security threat, but what's interesting about the Asas Tungal policy is that it was resentment against that policy that sent the first Indonesians to Afghanistan. Wow. It was that, it was resentment against Suharto that started out with the Asas Tungal policy that led a group of people who otherwise would have become involved in Muslim political parties, probably, to decide we need to get the tools to fight Suharto, and that's what sent them right. to Afghanistan. Right. Now, and, and this is interesting because this is where pa Haidar sort of comes in, because you were a student at um, uh, ITB in Bandung, and I only found out this morning that you you worshipped at the Salman Mosque, the famous mosque that V.S. Naipaul wrote about in Among the Believers. We're trying to figure out what year that was written and if you actually, if he, if you were actually one of his young sources back then. Uh, uh, I, I was in Bandung Institute of Technology and was active in Salman Mosque between 1976 to 
1981. Um, and I think there has been, like what uh, Sydney just said, there has been a kind of oversensitivity in the side of Suharto at that time towards what he thought to be political Islam. For instance, I was trained in Salman Mosque uh, under a very famous uh, lecturer in Bandung Institute of Technology. His name is Imaduddin. Yeah. Uh, 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 I forgot the complete name. His name is um, Muhammad Imanuddin. He is one of the trainer, and uh, people would think he's, he's from Medan, from uh, Sumatra, and he was very straightforward. He was very outspoken. But actually inside, he's a very moderate person. Mm -hmm. But since he, he was very outspoken and he would not uh, restrain himself from criticizing the president at that time, so uh, uh, President Suharto at that time would think that he's like a radical Muslim. Well, I know, for, I know for sure I was with him for years. And he is very soft inside. And I think this kind of uh, oversensitivity on the side of President Suharto was uh, uh, rather misleading for him. So he would think that most of the Muslims at that time are uh, having this uh, aspiration of an ideological Islam. Well, I know that even this Imanuddin Abdurrahim, yeah. Yeah, his name is Imanuddin Abdurrahim, He's uh, actually a very moderate person. Right. But uh, President Suharto at that time might think that someone who uh, criticized him would be someone, a Muslim who is ra radical, although this is not the case. Yeah, and yeah. You, you can actually read all about him in Among the Believers. He's yeah. the main character in yes. that chapter. But the other thing that I think is so interesting about that mosque, and this was something Pat Haider said this morning, that under the Order Baru, under Suharto, wasn't the mosque one place where you actually could sort of indirectly criticize the government? Like, tell us about how you invited Ali Siddiquin yeah. to come and give the speech at yeah, uh, Ramadan. I remember also, <laughs> I hope uh, I still remember very well. We also invited like General Nasution at that time. But uh, maybe it's difficult for the government at that time to prevent us from inviting those people because it was thought at that time, and actually that was the case, that it is an, a religious gathering. Usually we will, we will invite this, those kind of people uh, for uh, giving a sermon in the night of Ramadan. Um, uh, Salman is uh, known to be very open. Uh, Salman, I think, has started the initiative to invite uh, people from outside the religious scholars to give sermon in the, uh, mm -hmm. in the mosque. Uh, because Salman also spread this uh, understanding of knowledge in Islam as not limited to religious knowledge. I mean, anyone who knows any science, even if it is engineering or political science, could be considered to be uh, scholars, and any scholar can be invited to give sermon yeah. in the mosque. Yeah. yeah. Sydney, you had a comment you wanted yeah, to Yeah, one of the interesting things now is that with all this concern about campus radicalization, yeah. you sometimes hear Ite Bay mentioned as one of the places where radicalism is, uh, it prevails. But in fact, be precisely because of the openness of the Salman Mosque, what you get at Ite Bay is everything. Yeah. Yeah. And you get the radicals, but you also get the counter radicals, and you 
uh, you see how important it is to have freedom of expression on a university campus, because if you do have complete freedom of expression, you can, one can cancel the other out in a very effective way. Yeah, one, this is something that I found just fascinating about uh, intellectuals in the, in this, in, the, in the New Order, that, that religion was a kind of way you could indirectly criticize the regime because they, you know, well, it was religion that you couldn't invite. Ali Sadiqan was the governor of Jakarta and he signed the Petition of 50 that was very critical of Suharto. And you couldn't have him give a speech in a public place except in a mosque because that was different. And for those who don't know, this is Dina Zaman. I wanted her to catch her breath. Uh, a, a famous Malaysian writer, written for many, many news organizations. I first ran into your work in Malaysia Kini. She wrote a column called I Am Muslim. And uh, she has a new book, Holy Men, Holy Women. And, uh, but, and I want to bring about other stuff. But isn't it sort of the same that under under uh, the the the, the on national that was just kicked out of government that that the Islamist party was also a way that you could kind of indirectly criticize UMNO because yeah it's religious so is, is there a parallel between what happened in Indonesia under Suharto and what was pretty recently happened in Malaysia? Um, good afternoon everyone um, I apologize my van turned up at 3.30 but never mind <laughs> I am here yes. so yes uh, we have a new order now in Malaysia we have a new government and it's interesting because the little that I heard from Sydney, and we actually will look up to Sydney because the work that I do in other life is dealing with violent extremism, yeah? I think you're very right, Janet, about how the Islamic party of uh, Malaysia passed. When you look at Amana, um, simple things like this recent anti-LGBT attacks on transgenders and all. I think with a new government coming in, they're trying to reassert their presence as Islamists. Now, having said that, is it bad to be an Islamist or is it good to be an Islamist? For me and uh, people at Iman, this think tank where I work, we're realizing that it's not just about politics in Malaysia. We're also seeing a class divide and a class push. So for those of you who are very familiar with Malaysian politics, yeah, um, what do you see like, you know, the new members of PAS now, the new members of Amana, Amana right? Yeah. Yeah. These are the Malaysians who had actually benefited from the government uh, scholarships and the children have, you know, gone on to benefit the scholarship, uh, gone on to benefit. So what they're doing now is saying, you know, we don't agree with how Malaysia is heading. We're fed up of Barisan National, especially UMNO. You're supposed to be Muslims, but you're corrupt. You're very secular, etc., etc. So now we're pushing this agenda because we said we've had enough. And a lot of people have actually asked me, how does pass? How do right-wing groups like ISMA, Ikram, Abim, how do they all survive? Where do they get the funding from? They don't get the funding from anywhere. Especially when you look at Ikram or ISMA, they are very well-oiled machineries. They're extremely articulate. They know what's happening uh, politically. And they're saying, okay, we've got a new government now. We're going to make our presence known. Right. But Dina, isn't it also true that under the previous yes. regime that I knew lots of journalists at Malaysia Kini, like Fatih, and then people who wrote for Haraka, who've yeah. now all left. They've all left PAS and they're over in Amana. Yeah. But that they, they're Malays. They certainly, they couldn't, they couldn't join DAP, which is the Chinese party, basically. And they, they didn't like UMNO. So the only other party was PAS, the Islamist party. Right. So in a way, it sounded to me like parallel to what Haidar and Sydney were describing, that Islam gave you a way of 
criticizing the regime legitimately without, you know, because you can't, you, you can't smack down Islam. But it was, it was sort of this path that I was surprised how many of the Malays at Malaysia Kini actually were PAS supporters it, it, before it became... Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, you, then, oh. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you, okay. Um, I think, okay, that was when, how many years ago, yeah? When you look at New Malaysia now, you can see a lot more young Muslims who drive very nice cars, they have the nice handbags and all, who profess to say that, you know what? We're Islamists and we want this agenda and we're quite fed up with all of you. I mean, we like the cafe lifestyle, we like all this uh, stuff, but enough is enough. So you're not just looking at past or people supporting past. I think right now, with what's happening in Trunganu, where the locals are saying, you know, what happened to the two gay women who were with? We're, we're sort of doing, um, yeah. I don't mean, I am interrupting. Yeah. We're, we're talk, because we're doing evolving Islam, we want yeah. to talk about the past first, and then we're yeah. going to move forward to okay. the future. So uh, that's why I was asking about sort of the old regime, because uh. it seems like Islam is so... Its relationship to authoritarianism in this region is really, really interesting. That it was, or maybe I'm wrong, that it seemed to me that even in Malaysia, that Islam was a way you could fight authoritarianism legitimately. But I think that you actually had many other sides of Islam well, sure. in Malaysia, and that it was, in a way, the government of Mahathir that set up an Islamic bureaucracy yeah. that actually led. Malaysia down a path where Islamists could uh, uh, have positions of political power and influence. And True. it's as all, with all bureaucracies, they end up having a, a, a self-promoting agenda. If you're a bureaucracy, and it can be any bureaucracy, right. your goal in life is to have more power and a bigger budget. And that's what happened with the Islamic bureaucracy, that even if you have today a more progressive government than you had in the past, that bureaucracy is going to ensure conservative policies on the part of the government. Sure. And we have the same in Aceh, for example. Uh, well, could I just read something from your book? Um, the, the uh, Malaysian Department of Islamic Development. This is, this is uh, from Dina's new book. These are the rules for Muslims participating in non-Muslim festivals. These are the current rules. Uh, let's see, Muslims may attend the event as long as it is not accompanied by ceremonies that are against the Islamic faith. For example, including religious symbols such as the cross, installing lights, candles, Christmas trees, and so forth, singing religious songs, putting any religious markings on the forehead or any other markings on the body, delivering a speech or gestures in the form of praise to non-Muslim religions, bowing or conducting acts of honor to the religious ceremonies of non-Muslims, wearing red costumes like those of Santa Claus or other garments that reflect religion. I particularly like that one. Um, serving intoxicating food or beverages and the like, having sounds or ornaments like church bells, Christmas trees, temples, or the breaking of coconuts, and having ceremonies with elements of gaming, worship, cult, superstitions, and the like. So I think this is the bureaucracy you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, so your question would be about... Well, I, about I, I think maybe some of our Indonesian friends may not really understand kind of the relationship between religion and the state in Malaysia. Could you just like quick background on that, how that has worked? Now it's interesting because Malaysia actually looks towards Indonesia, yeah? Uh, how you conduct your faith, we find that Indonesia is very moderate, very liberal, etc., etc., yeah? 
But it's really funny to see that now, with the fieldwork that we do, and the Indonesians that we meet, the younger ones especially, who are saying, you know what? Indonesia is a very secular, liberal country. It's also very corrupt. So we're looking towards you, because you know how to act like proper Muslims. And this is really, really interesting, because like, oh, really? Um, about the coconut shells, now that I've done everything, just to see what it's all about, I'm still a Muslim. But yes, it is true that in Malaysia, okay, you're looking at two things, right? Islam is a state tool to, you know, to, uh, to keep us all in order. That's one. But two, especially among the younger Muslims or younger Malay Muslims in Malaysia, it is about the only identity that they have left. And many have said this, look, you know, we agree with all these policies, etc., etc., because being Malay of the yesteryears would mean that I'm lazy, I'm corrupt, I'm stupid, I'm getting all these breaks because I'm Bumiputra, I'm Malayu, you know? So this is the only thing that says, look, if I am a Muslim, I have this identity which is extremely global, yeah? And I can carry it beyond the state because this is my jihad. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that jihad means exploding bombs and all that. But it's a personal jihad for them because they said this is the only identity we have left. We haven't spoken about the young Chinese Muslims in Malaysia. Um, you know, demographically, there are more Malay Muslims. And I think, you know, sometimes as someone who observes this, you know, when you look at the state and with this new government with all kinds of dramas happening every week, and then you look at Malaysia, the people itself, you realize that you're looking at a country that's in flux, that's still trying to grapple and find its own identity, sure. and it hasn't found that yet. Sure, sure. Yeah. jump in. Uh, I just find it interesting. I used to work at Human Rights Watch, and I went to Malaysia in, I think, 1994 to meet recently returning Achenese fighters who had trained in Libya. And I went through an organization in Kuala Lumpur who knew the guerrilla leaders who were coming through. And she said, do you want to meet some other people from interesting organizations? And in the course of two days, I met people from the Brunei People's Party, a Palestinian organization, the Arakanese Rohingya Islamic Front. And what was clear was that Malaysia had become not just a state that was proud of its Islamic bureaucracy and wanted to have an identity that was very clearly both Islamic and modern, but it was also like the Vienna of the Cold War <laughs> for radical organizations. You could meet people from Gulbuddin Hekmatyar's yeah. Afghan group there. You could meet any spy from the Islamic world gathering in Kuala Lumpur in a way that showed that Malaysia also thought of itself as the central defender of international Islam. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. And we're going to talk about Islamic fighters in a minute, but I think maybe we should talk briefly about ordinary Islam. And Haider was uh, one of the many hats was being Pamimpin Umum, which we think, what, CEO of the newspaper Republica back in the day when it was founded by the uh, Ichmi, which is what, in Indonesian oh, Muslim Intellectuals? Muslims Association. Right, yeah, which Indonesian was... Muslim Intellectual Association. Right, which was, uh, you know, it was a creation of the Suharto regime, and they wanted to have a newspaper, and they got a 
Siup from Burrito Buana. Yeah. And it was, this morning you described Republica as an unguided missile. Could you explain maybe why Republica was an unguided missile under this, during the Suharto years? Yeah, if I may, I would like to uh, throw some light on the difference between Islam in Malaysia and Islam in Indonesia. Please, yeah. uh, as Sydney has just said, I mean, Islam in Malaysia is more bureaucratized and also more homogeneous. Islam. While in Indonesia, actually, majority of Muslims in Indonesia are uh, more into the traditional Islam, really traditional Islam, that some people would say that this is a syncretism between Islam and Hinduism. Actually, the Islam that has been brought by the first uh, preachers who came to Indonesia in the 15th century are actually um, kind of pantheistic Islam. I shocked some people when in one of the international conference in Jakarta, I was asked to talk about the Indonesian Islam, whether there is an Indonesian Islam. And in front of the academics and intellectuals in that conference, I said to them that I believe that the, uh, the Indonesian Islam is a kind of pantheistic Islam, which is nothing in Malaysia, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. that would be tersesat. Yeah. yeah. And actually, as I, uh, as I mentioned before, President Suharto at that time, I think, is oversensitive about this. He uh, has this idea that political Islam was big at that time and that they are actually collecting strength to uh, throw him down, for sure. instance. Well, um, we have Guzdur at that time. Guzdur is like the leader of the Nahdlatul Ulama who represent the traditional Islam. Actually, Suharto would go very well, would get along very well with Gusdur, because Suharto was, uh, was the follower of the uh, Kajawen. And there are lots of common uh, denominators between the more traditional pantheistic Islam and the Kabatinan that Suharto sure. at that time follows. But since Suharto, at, for instance, in the beginning of the 80s, uh, he had been there for like 15 sure. years and he had been very strong. Any small criticism he will accept as something very big that someone is undermining his authority. Although sir, uh, if he would open a little bit, for instance to people like Gusdur and go get along well with uh, Nahdlatul Ulama, he will find that majority of Indonesians are actually mu Muslims who would share the sure. same common denominators with Suharto well, as the well, can you there. can you t since Republica was I, I think its slogan was to serve the, the Islamic community the Muslim yeah. community tell us about Republica during the Suharto years because I think people might be surprised what it was like back then yeah uh, actually at that time it was not like uh, Suharto founded Republica I mean this is I mean two uh, two groups who would like to play with the other Suharto would uh, like to dictate on Republica, but we are in our own terms also. Uh, as I mentioned this morning, I said that for the Suharto people at that time, Republica was an un unguided missile. Suharto thought that by founding uh, the newspaper, Republica, he will get a guided missile that he can use as he liked at that time. But he found out that Republica actually there were many young journalists. I was at that time in my 35 years of age, if I'm mistaken. 
we have our own idealism. So we tried within the corridor to uh, also criticize the regime at that time. Um, so, uh, Republica actually was uh, in Republica, uh, young journalists gathered together and they, ho they, have, they don't have any other means at that time. So, okay, gave us Republica, uh, 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 you will find us to be good, but uh, be careful that we have our own agenda. And this has been proven to be very eff effective at that time. I, this morning I mentioned also that for instance, uh, uh, President Suharto was very angry when we published a series of uh, stories about the students who were kidnapped by, uh, by the army at that time. Uh, we also published many articles that would not uh, sound very uh, entertaining to the ears of the regime at that time also. So, well, the, one of the things that, that I, in doing my own research on journalism in Islam, that I found that people at Tempo, like Bambang Hedi Morti, they, he said to me, oh yes, everybody read Republica, particularly the Friday dialogue section, yeah. Dialogue Jumat, that it was this place, this space for incredible discourse about the Islamic world. That, yeah. You know, you had feminists and Americans and yeah. Sunnis and Shiites and Sufis, everybody could write for that. Yeah. that it, that that was the that, interesting. That was thing. when we were uh, uh, when we were free to uh, recruit the journalists at that time, and then uh, uh, a, a time came when uh, capitalism actually uh, intervened more uh, uh, strongly to the newspaper. So the uh, they have the I think they have the illusion that majority of, of Republica readers were Islamists, so they changed the tone of the newspaper. While before the Dialogue Jum'at, this is a special supplement that we publish every Friday, uh, like what Janet has just said, this is a supplement that would showcase Islam in its more cultural, scientific, yeah. and moderate uh, tone. Well, with the, to Islam, yeah. the, the other thing that I thought was so interesting about that, that this was tied, the change you described, the new business model, was actually tied to the fall of Suharto, right? And that Habibi, that, 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 it, that Republica lost its patron and had to find an investor, and then all the cosmopol Islam cosmopolitan crowd yeah. went to tempo. Yeah, but can I, can I just intervene? I mean, there's one other critical part of the sure. picture, which is that in the late Suharto period, Suharto wanted an, a, an alternative base to the military uh, to shore up uh, his later years. And he turned to Islam as a source of that power. And that meant that suddenly it was not only not a problem but actually desirable to show your piety in public places, to make the Hajj, to go through formal representations of observance of Islam. And it also meant in some parts of Indonesia, the elite switched over from being largely Christian, as in Ambon, and in parts of uh, Christian Indonesia, to being more Muslim in a way that sowed the seeds for some of the conflicts that emerged in the immediate aftermath of Suharto's fall. 
Okay, we're back to the fighters. And then Dina. Yeah. All right. Quick uh, and then Dina. A, a, a short fragment, actually. Uh, it, it was generated from Republica that we founded a magazine called Ummat. This is a magazine uh, conducted by the journalists who also run Republica. I was the, the uh, deputy to the CEO of this magazine. And this magazine actually is a magazine in which we publish, uh, this morning I mentioned about this, Amin Rais, at that time he was the, the main actor in the Reformation era, as man of the year. And, uh, and uh, uh, the turn of events actually started from there. When we published our man of the year, which, is, which was Amin Rais at that time, Amin Rais become more popular and become more prominent. And it turned out that he was at that time, I'm not talking about Amin Rais today, actually. Right. Amin Rais at that time really become the main actor of the reformation. So this is also generated from the same Republica that was thought to be founded by Suharto right. himself. Dina. Okay. Um, I'd like to touch upon about the pushback towards the state, yeah? Sydney just said something really, really relevant. Um, I'll just spin him out that, yeah? I, I mentioned briefly about how Malay Muslims, Malaysians, uh, feel very, very disenchanted by the state. So what they've done is, and this is what you see, in, especially in urban areas like Kuala Lumpur, right? They've got the money or at least some influence. So they bring in foreign clerics into Malaysia. So the popular ones would be like the typical Bilal Phillips, Mufti Mank, etc., etc. So these are pretty well known to authorities, to the police, etc. And it's like, okay, we may not exactly like their thinking, but they seem to be quite safe. But what is very worrying is that under this, you have a lot more, well, I wouldn't even call them Islamists. I would just call them clerics, ustas, ustaza, who come from overseas, yeah? Um, and you know, you're right about Malaysia. Anyone can just come. Malaysia, truly Asia. We want your money. Come and visit us. You know, got cheap food. And they stay. Now, if you are from the Middle Eastern country, you do not need a visa to fly in. You come in one month, you do a visa run. And when we do feel well, we meet all kinds of people. And it is very worrying because when we talk to people like the police, they're saying, you know what? We're really, really under-resourced and we cannot do right. this. So that's one. Two. We've also felt that in Malaysia, when you talk about Islam, it's very, very class-based. So I'm in these three, you know, WhatsApp groups, right? The authorities, the Salafis who feel, oh, you know, you all hate us because you think that all we do is just bomb people, but we don't. But we're just, you know, Salafis are very friendly. And, uh, and you're seeing this clash. And I have had conversations with them. I said, look, you've got to stop looking from this Salafi point of view, who's right, who's wrong. We actually have a security issue here. Why aren't you doing anything about these religious clerics who are not necessarily radical, or could be radical, but also teach a very strange brand of Islam? And this is what we keep getting from the police and even the people that we've interviewed. The state has failed us. So whether you like this Islam or not, it speaks to me. I like it, and even if it means that I have to host this person in this house for the next one month, two months, we'll do it. And it is very worrying for us. Um, okay, we also know when you talk about on-campus on radicalization, what we do know is that there are some PhD postgraduate students from this region who come to Malaysia because you know we offer you scholarships and all, and they say, all right, we'll do this, and then they start radicalizing you, and they start recruiting you. So I think in Malaysia, in that, in that sense that we have a security problem, 
and I don't, I, I would don't want to speak on behalf of the, of the police or immigration, but it's something which we ask. Sure. What are you all doing, and why aren't you doing this? Okay, quick. Just one comment. Okay, but quick, because we want to move <laughs> yeah, on to. It's 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 uh, uh, some people looking at rising intolerance in Indonesia today say, ooh, maybe Indonesia will become like Pakistan. And I say, no way. The worst case scenario is that it becomes like Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. Well, we haven't really, uh, Dina is, is quite famous for this column, I Am Muslim, that you did in Malaysia Kini, and then that you, you I mean, you write about different faiths, and I mean, you are like the poster child for interfaith dialogue. Why is that? so dangerous in Malaysia? Why is that even controversial? What's wrong with interfaith dialogue? Uh, I'll tell you something else <laughs> It's not something that I was thinking about. Okay, one, I guess my curiosity is because I'm a third culture kid, you know, followed my dad here, there, and everywhere, and I came back to Malaysia, and I said, ooh, you know, and I was put into an all-Malay boarding school, and I just stuck out like a sore thumb, I was 15. And okay, okay, so we're supposed to be doing this, I'm supposed to think like this, but that's not right. And then, you know, you grow up and all that. And why is it so dangerous to talk about interfaith dialogue? Why is that such a... I think the state thinks this way. By having this kind of engagement, then the Muslims might become Christians. There are already, you know, but it's all undercover. And they don't want proselytization. They say, okay, you can't have this. But I have to give it to some Islamist groups like Ikram, not Isma, or Abim, who are saying, look, we live in a multicultural country, we have to have this engagement, we have to talk to them. However, the dynamics are very different. When, you know, when I talk to these newer groups now, I say, oh, it's great that you're doing this. I said, okay, but it has to come within a certain framework that we Muslims can live with, right? You must remember, we're the majority. So the non-Muslims will have to pander or at least bend to this kind of framework which of course doesn't sit well with non-Muslims to say, look, we may be what you call the pandatang, but we've invested. Newcomers, we have nowhere else right? to go. Yeah. New immigrants, newcomers. Immigrants. We have nowhere else to go. We don't want to go back to China. We don't want to go back to India. We love what, what it is. And it's funny that in this new Malaysia, yeah, right, um, identity politics is still being played out on Facebook in real life. And you think, you know what? Things haven't really changed. And it's more vocal now, which is great. People don't feel so scared about voicing out how they feel or how, what they fear. But in the long run, you know, this is already 2018, new government, etc., etc. We're still having this conversation. Where is this going to go? And it doesn't help that when you read the newspapers, they're saying, okay, we have entered this. The, there are a few Islamist ministers. Um, some are quite okay, but they're all saying, look, we have to push this agenda now because you know, we were in opposition, we were this is this, so now that we're in power, we want to stake our claim here and mold a new Malaysia. Is that healthy? I'm not going to say it's yes, it's bad or good. I think for us as researchers, we just want to look first. Sure. Yeah. Okay, what? quick, because I want to move on. <laughs> I just want to say it's one difference between Indonesia and Malaysia, that in Malaysia, there may still be a utility for interfaith dialogue. I think that in Indonesia, interfaith dialogue is largely a waste of time and almost in some cases counterproductive because it gets people in luxury hotel rooms talking to each other in gab fest that have no practical implications on the ground and in some cases actually conveys the illusion of 
progress in terms of real understanding okay. that isn't taking place in reality. I have to jump in here because um, Suharto's Minister of Religion, Mukti Ali, he actually introduced the study of comparative religion in all of the Islamic universe. No, but even understanding other religions. Like, comparative religion is a good thing. That's not the same as the kind of interfaith dialogues that are taking place with huge okay. amounts of donor money that are wasted. Okay, okay, all right. Well, let, now we've talked about the past. Let's move on to the future, evolving Islam. Um, all right, Haider. Um, <laughs> this, this, is, this is a hard group to corral here. Um, <laughs> All right. So you said again that some, this morning some very interesting things. The idea that Islam is not a, it's always seen as a religion of law. It's actually a religion of love. You've written about Rumi. Um, how do you how do you reconcile that with? We can get Sydney started about t talking about the fighters again. How do you reconcile what you see, what your organizations are trying to do in Indonesia with Islam, with what Sydney is reporting in, in exhaustive detail in these studies? How, what's going on here? I still believe that the majority of the Muslims are uh, not only that they are moderate, but they actually, that Islam is a kind of, uh, a kind of, if you uh, know about Ernest Garner, he wrote about the differences between the high Islam and the low Islam. Uh, Islams in Indonesia, I think it's different from the Malaysian Islam, it's more the low Islam, while in Malaysia it's more to the high Islam. In Indonesia, Islam is something, uh, Islam is a part of their culture, of their uh, life, of their daily life. Islam is not, not something uh, that you contrast with your culture, with your daily life. And I think the contribution of mysticism, uh, especially pantheism, I studied a little bit about the influence of pantheism uh, in Islam in Indonesia. The contribution of mysticism or uh, kind of panthe pantheism is very important here, although uh, not many people would uh, highlight this uh, influence of pantheistic mysticism in Islam. But I think it's changing. Yeah. I think it's changing. And I think that while that is absolutely true, yeah. there's a very important Ch Changing in some part of the Muslims in Indonesia. Especially. No, there's data that it's changing almost everywhere in Muslim majority parts of Indonesia. I think it depends on how you see this element of mysticism in Islam. Uh, if you go to NU, even if you go to Muhammadiyah, uh, we are talking about Muhammadiyah in Central Java, not the Muhammadiyah in Sumatra, for instance, you will still find this kind of pantheistic mysticism within Muhammadiyah in Indonesia. Kiai Ahmad Dahlan, actually, was the friend of Kiai Wahid Wahid Hashim, yeah, he's the friend. We were told that actually Ahmad Dahlan, who suggested to Wahid Hasim to found NU because of the development uh, of Muhammadiyah that actually was not in his agenda when he started to... So even Muhammadiyah in Yogyakarta, I have friends who are 100% Muhammadiyah who will still uh, retain this uh, right. mystical, pantheistic th tendency. Yeah, but I don't think it's the majority. Right. Let's get Dina. I'd like to disagree with okay, you. Okay, Malaysia. Uh, Dina, what about 
what about, I mean, there, there's also a tradition of mysticism in Malaysia, right? But is this the high-low thing that, um, that Pahider's talking about? Or? I don't know about this high-low Islam in Malaysia. I mean, for me, as a Malaysian Muslim, it's like, we have a lot of varieties, but it depends on what group you are and what kind of money you have. Uh, so I don't know about this high-low thing, but there is still mystical Islam, yeah. but you don't see it in urban areas. Well, you write about it in your book. You've got, you, you visit some of these communities. Well, I went yeah. to places like out of Kuala Lumpur. So, yeah. you know, I just went out there, had an adventure and said, oh, you know, this is really fun. This is very interesting. Yeah. Um, but I think when it comes to Malaysia, you see, a lot of our politics or even religious politics in Malaysia is very, very centralized in Kuala Lumpur. You have to look beyond right. Kuala Lumpur, one. You have to look at Sabah and Sarawak, too, which is in, you know, on the island of Borneo. And they're saying, we don't want this kind of peninsula Islam because we're pretty happy. The thing is, it's quite right, you know, in the sense that when you look at Sabah, because it was such a BN stronghold then, right, uh, many of the locals are saying, you know, your peninsula Islam is actually influencing my kind of Islam. It was very syncretic, very communal-based. You're killing us. And I was just a researcher for 10 days covering you know, orangutans and the pollution and all. I'm going, I did not know what to say. I said, all right, I'll write a story about this. But is there syncretic Islam? You know, um, there are all kinds of layers and different right. kinds of faces. I mean, like if before we would go to a dukun, a bomo, right? Now we have Islamic healing, rukia, which is just like basically popping all around there. Yeah. And I've been to some just to see what it's all about. Your book is yeah. so interesting because I think um, those of us who study Malaysia, we always think, oh yeah, well there's this fusing of religion and the state, which there is, and that the state gets to decide who's right. a good Muslim, which they do. But you have found this incredible variety of practices around Malaysia that you write about. You know, everything from, I love the sort of retired widows who go and live together. And I mean, that was an amazing community. And then your, your trip to Sabah, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. Well, you know, um, I used to write. I don't write anymore. I do research. I did that because I felt, you know, I'm just so sick and tired of Kuala Lumpur politics. I wanted to discover my country. I wanted to go to Sabah, Sarawak, because at that time, yeah. I haven't been there. And I went out there, and you know, when you're in Kuala Lumpur, right, everybody will just ask you, what kind of Muslim are you? Are you a liberal, conservative, Sufi, Salafi, blah, blah, and you're going, I don't know, I'm just trying to do my best to be a good Muslim or a good human being, and you know, it doesn't, eh. And you don't really have these discussions. And I remember that I would have friends who are Indians, you know, say, oh, we have to celebrate in Dipavali, but uh, if you can come, don't tell anyone. I said, my God, has it come to this? So then I thought, you know, why don't I just ask around friends? Okay, what does it mean to be a Hindu? What does it mean to be a uh, Christian? And can I tag along? I got kicked out. I got kicked out of meditation groups. Oh, you're Muslim, out. Oh, don't you want me? No. I went off to, you know, the Christian churches. I said, look, I'm not going to be a Christian. I just want to sit down there and see what you all do. Do you sing Christmas carols? Yeah, I was quite... Yeah, um, don't wear but, red, not yeah. like Santa Claus. <laughs> but uh, it was actually very interesting in this church. So, I was sitting at the back. But and you're not even supposed to be in a church, really, right? According to the, to the set of rules. I mean, I guess you'd have to... I think me, with me at least, I just crash the party yeah. and see what it's all about. <laughs> but that's why, I mean, when we're talking about interfaith dialogue, I, and I, let's not get started again, but that's, that's, that's what Dina stands for in a way. I mean, it's real. You actually go to these places and talk to people and kind of find out what they believe and try to find commonality in a way that's very different from the things you're talking about, I but think. But you know what I find so fascinating that 
when the book came out and I started, you know, doing the little rounds around uh, Malaysia, everyone said, whether you're Muslim or not, weren't you scared? Isn't that scary? And they said, you know, I don't find meeting human beings scary. They're good people. But the fear in them, and it was the same thing like when we met young Malay Muslims, why do you take this radical identity? There was right. just so much fear. And I remember we were, when we were taping all these interviews, I did say to one of the colleagues, you know, I said, I don't know whether we need the authorities here right. or a psychiatrist here. <laughs> but no, really, it, it, I know it may be very funny, but the fear, the fear of the other sure. overwhelms. And it's not just about, right. you know, non-Muslims, even from Muslims of other faiths. It's like, oh, I have friends or family saying, oh, you know, you have Indonesian Muslim friends. Yes, they're very nice. Oh, but, you know, Indonesian Islam is very different. They may wear the right. hijab and all, but that's not Malaysia's Islam. And Malaysia is very good at actually creating these little silos to protect themselves. And it could be indoctrination. It could be because fear from the state. It could be a fear from within. And that's something which we haven't really... You know, but we do have right. multiple identities. Could I? I want to ask Pat Heider because this morning I heard you say something quite interesting that um, you have been criticized roundly for saying that non-Muslims can go to heaven. <laughs> yes, actually, this morning I mentioned about uh, one of the articles that I put in my uh, one of my books. The title of the book itself is sounds controversial to some people which is Islam Tuhan, Islam Manusia, means divine Islam and human Islam. I try to tell people that actually you need to differentiate between your Islam and the Islam that God wants you to be. Yeah. I mean, don't think that you are God, that, what, that you are a Muslim uh, as what God wants you to be a Muslim. There is always a gap between, between what God wants you and what you are and also this happens to all people i mean you have to accept that there are differences of legitimate islams i mean a mystic a mystic big mystic his name is ibn arabi he sa he says that uh, everyone actually creates his own god it doesn't mean that god is relative but humans would receive kind of emanation from god uh, in accordance with his predisposition. Uh, uh, human beings are created unique. No two people, the, uh, no two people uh, with the same uh, predisposition. So all human would accept God uh, in accordance with his predisposition. So if we have like one trillion people, Muslims, there will be one trillion uh, uh, concept of God each would be different to the other concept of God. This is actually the message that I would like to tell people about this uh, divine Islam and human Islam. Your Islam is human, not the Islam which is in the mind of God. So don't act as if you are God. Yeah. Well, that's a good message. Yeah. Okay, we need, I, I want the audience to have time to ask questions, but we would be remiss if we did not talk about, and I'm going to cite Sydney here and ask you to explain this. Um, in, in one of the reports, recent reports from your Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict, you write, 
This is about the Ahok issue, which of course we've heard about a lot now. You write, at the same time, the 212 movement arguably changed Indonesian politics by showing how potent the religious card can be if the issue at hand is framed as defending Islam from attack by non-Muslims. Uh, then the formula is clear. Instructions go out to the faithful through social media and Friday sermons. Jakarta is brought to a standstill through mass demonstrations and the government capitulates. So if we're talking about evolving Islam, I mean, this sounds really scary, that, that the use of Islam by politicians in this perhaps unprecedented way or not unprecedented. The floor is yours. Well, I think one of the things that's happened in the last uh, decade uh, with the advent of local elections, but also more, uh, more use of social media and the internet to mobilize sentiment is that as far as many politicians are concerned, what matters is not what policy you formulate, it's how many people you can get out in the street in support of that policy. And that's what changes views. You don't change through reasonable argument or persuasion, you change by showing that you can actually control the street. And that's as true probably in Europe or in the Middle East or the US or uh, here in Indonesia. But what happened when we had the campaign for governor of Jakarta, where the uh, Christian Chinese governor was targeted, and he'd been targeted for a long time, as a blasphemer, was that the, there was an alliance created of two groups, largely. One group was a politically opportunistic group that wanted to mobilize on the basis of blasphemy and on the basis of getting as many people out on the streets as possible. And that was very much a political act that was supported by the rival candidates for governor. And then there was a group that had and has a longer-term agenda in Indonesia of making it closer to an Islamic state. And it's the tactical alliance of those two groups which does not bode well for the body politic in Indonesia as we move forward, both as we move forward short-term to next year when we have presidential elections, but also as we move forward longer term for, the, for what vision is going to predominate in terms of what kind of a state Indonesians want. So we have, we have some people using democracy for anti-democratic ends. Sure. And so I, I urge all of you to read these reports. You can go to, to the website for the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict and read all of Sydney's reports, which are, are your team wrote, and they're phenomenal. But so I want to ask you, Pat Heider, I mean, you're the founder of an organization called Gerakan Islam Cinta, the, the Compassionate Islam Movement. How do you reconcile your work with what Sydney has just described, which how can you counter this or are you, is it, are you all sort of on different trajectories and you're not really concerned with this or what, 
How yeah, do you actually, see this? I'm, I'm thinking now to write an article in Compass newspaper by the title of Religion versus Religion. This is started by an Iranian left, leftist thinker. His name is Ali Shariati. And I would like to develop this to say that actually even in one religion, you, will, you can find more than one religion. I mean, you can find uh, an Islam with a gap of understanding with another group of Muslims, not uh, less than the gap that is there between Islam and Christianity, for instance. So that's why uh, this morning I mentioned about the, uh, the way how the phenomenologies of religion would divide religion into two. One is the law-oriented religion and the other is the love-oriented religion. And, and this really, um, I mean, like seeing two religions in one. I mean, like mysticism is the love-oriented religion. And then you have this fundamentalist who would see religion uh, as solely about law and politics. But These, it sounds like they're winning. Huh? It, it sounds like they're winning. Well, I, I would not say that they are winning, but I know that the consequences, if we cannot really... Uh, curb this tendency toward more political Islam, then the, uh, the consequences would be fatal. I agree with that. But I need to uh, attract your attention to the fact that this movement like Aksi Bela Islam, the Dua, Dua Satu Dua, the 212 movement. This is, is the mass movement on 2nd of December, December yeah. uh, 2016. Don't be very sure that this is a religious movement. This might be more a movement to regain their identity. Yeah. I know many of the people who are a staunch supporter of this movement, but as a Muslim, they, are, they still retain their moderate uh, tendency. I mean, don't generalize this to be a radical movement. No, fine, yeah. fine. I think that you, I think it was overwhelmingly a political movement where you had an alliance as I say, of political opportunists with religious activists. Yeah. But I think there are other worrying signs in Indonesia which suggest that your love-based theory of Islam is not gaining traction yeah. and indeed is seen as a major threat by certain groups in Indonesia. And one of those groups is the Indonesian Ulama Council, yeah. which is now seen as an almost governmental body. It started out as a kind of rubber stamp body to uh, endorse whatever Suharto wanted to do. It's gradually become a, uh, an organization which issues fatwa, some of them extremely disturbing and, and of concern, uh, that, uh, that have taken on the, uh, the status of government edicts. So I think that that's not, uh, that's not yeah, I would not deny. I would not deny that this Islamist uh, is gaining ground in Indonesia. Compared to 10 years ago, for instance, they are s stronger now. But if you uh, would like to convince me that they are now a majority, I would have to beg to disagree with you. I okay. mean, this is... Okay, yeah. no, all right, no. you, you two can carry on afterwards. I mean, you're not the one that have data. I have data. I'm in, I'm okay. in the middle of the movement since I was a Muslim student. Yeah. 
in okay. 1976. And I'm now still in the center of the movement. Okay, could so I, I know Habib Rizik very well. I know uh, uh, who is this Hatayi uh, speakers very well. I know the leaders of the PKS people. When they were students, they were the students of my father. Every week they will come to my house. So I know them not only from data. I know them existentially. Okay, all right, so we have two competing views here, which you can ask about. I want to ask Dina one final quick question before we open this up. Um, Dina, have, is there any evidence at all that with the new government, Pakatan Harapan, in Malaysia, that there are going to be any changes in the role of political Islam? Are they going to, are they going to disengage the state and bureaucracy, to use Sydney's word, from the practice of ordinary daily Islam? I think the new government will find that it will not be able to cope with the mess that the previous government has. Okay, the, the most obvious thing right now is that pushback against the LGBT community. Yeah. yeah, So that's the most obvious thing, right? But when you talk about issues like in Sabah, Project IC, which was actually mooted by our now uh, Prime Minister. Oh yeah, I, I'm going to. Project IC is, is an identity card that all Malaysians have. Now I think if you're all familiar with Sabah or not familiar, yeah? Um, there's a lot of irregular migrants and movement between Philippines, Indonesia coming to the state. So at that time, Mahadi decided, all right, I want more Muslims to vote for Barisan. I will give you this. I'll give you a little bit of pocket money. I'll give you identity. You come to Malaysia, you do this, right? It costs this much. So now, if before it was very bureaucratic, right now it's become a business among the locals, okay? You want to get here? I'll give you this identity card. It belongs to this. Um... I think that's one mess that they'll have to deal with. Now, when you look at, okay, you know in Malaysia we have 14, 13 states, right? Each state is run by a different uh, religious authority led by a mufti, okay? And even the jakim, which is basically the religious department that oversees everything in Malaysia, they basically don't have much say. So the states have their own idea of how to run their version of Islam. So you have some states which are more uh, prone to Salafi or Wahhabism. You have some which are a bit more Sunni or Sufi. And uh, I don't know how this current government is actually going to centralize everything and make everything systematic or standardized. And I don't think it's going to happen. Okay. Um, what, the little that we know is that, you know, Mujahid, I've met Mujahid before we published his book. I have a little bit of a soft spot for him because he's quite okay. But I think he's way over his head and he doesn't know what to do. I mean, you know, the current government before, they were all activists, you know, yeah. be screaming, shouting by the roadside. Now, they're ministers. You know, I met, I met um, um, Mujahid at, uh, at the Christmas tea at the, uh, at the cathedral. So that's the kind of guy he is. I have a soft spot too. Okay, we have about 10 minutes left. Quick questions, quick answers, so we can get a lot of them in. Uh, please, uh, microphone, yes, you. Um, please stand up and run up with a microphone. Um, hello, it's, it has been a very interesting discussion. My name is Weena, I'm a student, and I'm also a young uh, Indian-Indonesian and a Buddhist. This discussion has been very important for me because how we as a young generation should engage in this discussion, and especially if I'm a non-Muslim, what roles I could do regarding this discussion. Because I've been growing up in a public school where I interact with a lot of Muslims, and I actually never really encounter radical Muslim until the 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 two twenty one um 
movement and such. Maybe Thank we you. should take like two more questions and then answer them all at once. Um, uh, yes, you uh, stand up, the mic close to the mic. Okay, Irene Ritchie, um, just directed to Haida. I've read a lot about syncretic um, Islam in Java and mystical Islam, but not pantheistic um, mysticism. And I just wondered if you could- Pantheistic. Yeah, if you could explain that, thanks. Okay, and then you in the back with the microphone, yes. The, oh sorry, yeah, you told that the interfaith dialogue is a waste of time. What about the inter-Islam dialogue? Is it still a waste of time as well? Okay, panel. Um, Haider, would you like to start? Since okay, one more question and then, yes. Microphone. Hello. Yeah. Yes, moderator, you are a specialist on journalism, right? Right. I was with Republica. I was deputy chief editor of Republica. Oh. And just to correct, Haider uh, Bakir was pimpin perusahaan, not pimpin umum, okay. which is different. And uh, to correct you as well, okay. uh, Republica didn't take the license from Brita Buana. It was given the license uh, by the government. And uh, Republica was not a puppet of Suharto. I didn't say it was. Okay, just to yeah. be clear. No, Rubica I never said exists that. now, and uh, it is good newspaper. And it was, uh, most of the journalists, many of the journalists were intellectual. They chose to work with uh, Suharto because they think they can change right. from, uh, from, from right. within. You and I, why don't we continue this later? No, and no, let no, the no, just like this. <laughs> I'll tell you something. And only thing, you know, different between Indonesia and some other countries. When a president is angry like Suharto, he asked the, prime, uh, the chief editor and deputy chief editor, I was, to be fired from the newspaper. But I'm we didn't call, uh, kill people in the embassy uh, or in the consulate somewhere else. Right. So okay. this is very different, you know? I, we, we can have a great conversation after this, but I'd like the panel to answer the, the questions about the evolving Islam. So, Haider and I think Nina. I will take just one question about the... Uh, pantheistic Islam that I mentioned before. Actually, um, we can almost uh, easily say that all uh, mysticism, especially Islamic mysticism, are pantheistic in nature. Even, for, for instance, in Indonesia, the kind of uh, mysticism that has been adopted by the majority of, in, of Indonesian are the uh, Sufism of Al-Ghazali. And some people would read uh, everywhere in the Pesantrans, they would read books written by a Sufi by the name of uh, Ibn Atta'ilah al-Iskandari. Even the more sober Sufis, like Al-Ghazali, is actually pantheistic. Uh, so no Islamic mysticism that can uh, totally free itself from pantheism. Pantheism is an understanding that in this universe, there is only one existence, which is the existence of God. And all other existence uh, are only kind of emanation from God. That uh, all creations are actually uh, participate in the existence of God. So this pantheistic mysticism, actually uh, panthe pantheism in general, is something which would embrace everything. They would not only think that uh, as Muslim they are uh, within the brotherhood of the Muslims, they are within the brotherhood 
of man, they are even in the brotherhood of all creation. That, for instance, uh, animals, trees are actually also their brothers with the same existence that particip the, the whole existence participates in the existence, ex existence of God. If you studied, for instance, the teaching of uh, Wali Songo, especially the teaching of Shasiti Jinnar, you will find that their Islam uh, were actually this kind of pantheistic uh, Muslims. Okay. And I still believe that uh, although it is latent, this kind of pantheism is still there within the Islam of the uh, Indonesian, especially before the coming of the Wahhabi Islam in okay. the past uh, several decades. Okay. But I'm still saying that this is the Islam of the majority of the Muslims. Okay, uh, Sydney, Dina, would you like to tackle the question of intra-faith dialogue among Muslims and also the question about, you know, what can we do to make things better? I'll just say on the intra-Islamic dialogue, good luck bringing someone with pa Haidar's views together with uh, someone who represents uh, a Salafi viewpoint. Uh, there are uh, as Pahaidar mentioned, as many splits within Islam as there are in any other religion. We even have splits within the pro-ISIS movement. There are two streams of the pro-ISIS movement, uh, one slightly more militant than the other. So uh, I don't think that you'll get too far trying to have a large intra-Islamic dialogue, and in fact, it might be harder to do that than to bring together an interfaith dialogue. It sounds just, like it. Just one comment. Uh, the exception to my uh, perhaps unfair dismissal of interfaith dialogues more generally is when they translate into actual community projects on the ground. For example, after the Ambon conflict, there was some very good work getting uh, 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 children from Christian and from Muslim communities together to actually study computer literacy, for wow. example. So it was something non-religious, but bringing, bringing them together in a single environment. And that resulted from an interfaith dialogue. So if you can translate it to practical projects on the ground, Fine, but Gabfest, no thank you. <laughs> okay, Dina, we are counting on you to okay. continue really, really on the quick. positive note here. What can we do to make things better? Buddhist, right. Okay, when you talk about intra-faith dialogue among Muslims in Malaysia, the work we do deals with communities, and I think that we do need to have this conversation because you're seeing actually the older generation feeling really left behind or actually shut out by the, by the children or grandchildren who said, you know, we know a different kind of Islam, which is more all-inclusive and we'll go to heaven faster than you. And uh, it has been said many times, parents have actually said, look, we don't understand this. And this is where you see, you know, the Salafi Wahhabi movement is very, very well-funded and it's very attractive. So a lot of the older generation in Malaysia tend to be more Sunni, yeah? But we do need that conversation among us Muslims in Malaysia to see what the next steps are, and you know, um, on the interfaith dialogue, I think there was a, someone right in the middle there. I just thought it was really sad that at, in this age that we actually have to say, look, we're talking about being Muslim, non-Muslim, interfaith dialogue. When will this conversation be over? 
Why can't we talk about things like poverty, radicalization, etc., politics? Why are we always looking at each other as the other? Okay. A lovely way to end. So let's thank our panel and uh, thank you for your participation. And uh, they will be, I think Dina will be available to sign your book afterwards. If uh, I'm not, it's, it's for sale somewhere, I hope. Heider, um, your books are out there and uh, read Sydney's reports. So thank you. <laughs>